Okay, so we are, we're in this series of Revelation, and uh, this week I came across a story that just really captured my, my heart. Um, has anyone ever heard of a man named Maximilian Kolbe? Nobody. Okay, you're about to find out. He was a Polish Christian serving as a priest when the Nazis invaded in 1939. He was arrested, and when he was arrested, um, he told his fellow priests, take courage, my sons. Don't you see that we are leaving on a mission, and the Nazis have been kind enough to cover our travel expenses? (laughs) But I just think this man's uh, just deep faith and hope and courage in what the Lord is doing in his life. Um, He was later released from that initial imprisonment, and uh, in his time of release, in his time of freedom, he took in more than 3,000 refugees and Jews and cared for them and hid them. Uh, And then he was rearrested two years later because of that and because he was speaking out against the Nazis and what they were doing. He was rearrested in 1941 and taken to Auschwitz concentration camp. He was beat savagely and left for dead more than once, and other prisoners, because they loved him so much, would come and take him and hide him while he recovered. Um, Yeah, here we go. Um, While this was happening, he wrote to his mother from Auschwitz and said, Mama, all is well with me. Do not worry. Uh, In 1941, three prisoners appeared to have escaped from this camp, So to teach everybody else a lesson, 10 prisoners were chosen to starve to death in an underground bunker. (laughs) When one of the men heard that he was selected, he cried out and said, my wife, my children. And so Colby, upon hearing him yell this, immediately volunteered and said, I'm going to take his place. So in this starvation bunker, in this hell on earth, um, where they were not seeing the sun, they were, you know, not let out to use the bathroom, um, they were just in this darkness. Uh, The guards later reported that Colby was leading these men in hymns and prayers. He was the presence of Jesus in the filth and the darkness of this death bunker. Um, And eventually, as they spent more and more days there, uh, he was so weak, and the people, the men that were with him were so weak that their prayers and songs were just these hoarse whispers. Uh, When many were too weak to stand, the guards would see him standing in the middle of them all, as if keeping watch over them, protecting them, praying over them. And one of the guards said, this is truly a great man, and we have never seen anyone like him. So after two weeks, most of those 10 men were dead, uh, but he was not, and the Nazis were tired of waiting on him to die, so they gave him a lethal injection. Uh, And so this this man, this hero, just quietly died uh, in this concentration camp. But uh, the man whose place he took actually survived, uh, survived this whole thing, went on to lead a full life. And when they asked him later, he said this about the time when he, he was there watching this man take his place. And he said, I could only thank him with my eyes 
I was stunned, and I could hardly grasp what was even happening, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offering his life for me, a stranger. Is this some kind of a dream? And so I tell you this story not to say um, we need to be more like this man, because that's not something that we are capable of doing. But I tell this story because you have to ask this question, what made this man live like this? What enabled this man to live like this, to want to live like this, for this to even be possible, to give this man the strength to live like this? And the answer is that he has known this love and this power on an even deeper level than the man talking about him taking his place. Because he took this man's place in this physical world of suffering. But Kolbe knew a man who had taken his place to the greater, more infinite depths of, of eternal suffering and had taken his sin upon himself. Not just a stranger, but an enemy. An enemy of God. God came and put on flesh and suffered in his place. And now this man is armed and dangerous because this man has been loved. This man has been freed. This man is out in the world fighting in this war against darkness with his Jesus. So we are not to try to be more like Maximilian Kolbe, but we are to get to know this Jesus that he knew and still knows. And that's who we are coming to this morning. Uh, Megan, if you'll come on up. Megan's going to read our passage. Uh, while Megan's coming up, I'll just say this. Uh, this is our second week in this series on Revelation. Um, as we've heard uh, last week, the beginning verses of this book, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not only the revealing that Jesus is doing, the pulling back the curtain of what is really happening now and what will happen in the future, but it's also the revealing of Jesus Christ, the pulling back the curtain on who this man is, to really see Jesus as he is now. We're told that this book is not a code book to crack. Uh, this is not a series of fortune tellings. This is a pastoral letter. It is, a, it is an apocalypse. It is a revelation. It is uh, a prophecy, but it is also a pastoral letter given to bless the people of God as we live on this earth in what he calls and tells us is the last days, to tell us how things are when we can't see them with the naked eye. And so today, uh, we are getting to see the curtain pulled back on our Jesus as he is now and what he is doing now. And so you'll see these first few weeks of this series, we're kind of talking about revealing how things are now. It's sort of like the start of a roller coaster. And we're kind of like cranking up the hill right now because we can, we can sort of be more in touch with like the way things are now. And then we're about to hit the drop when we're gonna see the things that are to come. It's going to get even more wild. Uh, but today we're still cranking up the hill. So Megan, if you'd read our passage for us. This is Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, 
was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven ch churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Megan. Father, we are, we are here today. This is always true, but I feel it especially today, Lord, that we are so frail. We are so deafened and dumbed and blinded uh, to this great reality of your glory and who you are and how you love us and how you work in the world and what is really behind all the things that we see every day. And so, Lord, I just pray uh, that you would come and do what we cannot do, which is to open our eyes and open our ears, and open our hearts, and our minds uh, to see you as you are, to see you more for who you are, and uh, to not leave here unchanged. And Lord, I, as, as frail as I feel, and as, as sometimes hopeless as this feels, to try to grasp and, and get the reality of these things that you're telling us in these pages, I'm also deeply encouraged because you have revealed these things to us in this specific way, for your purposes, and so you will enable us to understand and grasp and see you and love you and respond to you in these pages. And so uh, we thank you for that, and we ask for that now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, these first couple verses, John is talking about life as, as he experienced it, as someone who is following Jesus, who is a partner with Jesus um, in this life, in this fallen world, and that is, that is how we will experience life as those who are in Christ. He says, um, I am John, your brother and partner in these three things that are in Jesus. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. What is he talking about? He's a partner with, with everyone who is in Christ and Jesus himself in the tribulation. It is tribulation because what is happening is Jesus is waging war against the kingdom of darkness in this world. 
It is tribulation because there will be suffering when the pressure of another kingdom comes and invades the kingdom that is diametrically opposed to it. And so there will be pressure. There will be suffering. There will be war. He is um, also a partner in the kingdom that is, is in Jesus, that God is still the ruler of all of creation, all the seen realm and all of the unseen realms that we know very little about. This same God who spoke creation into existence and sent his son to die on a cross for us and then raised him again to new life to make him king forever, this same God is reigning sovereignly even now, it says in scripture, over all the kings of the earth. Even when we don't understand why things are happening the way that they're happening, he is on the throne. He is in charge. No one can stand against him. And this kingdom is breaking in even now. We get a taste of it now, but we will experience it fully one day in the future when Jesus returns and makes all things new. So he, like us, is a partner with Jesus and with these people he's writing to, the original audience of these seven churches scattered throughout Asia. John is their brother and partner in this tribulation and the kingdom, and lastly, the patient endurance. The patient endurance that is in Jesus because of love. Jesus endures the suffering of this world, and he calls us to follow him in enduring the suffering of this world, like Maximilian Kolbe, to fight with him against the kingdom of darkness. It is an honor and a privilege to not remain cowards and not remain self-absorbed, but for Jesus to be transforming us and to call us to follow him into freedom and into strength, his strength, not ours, to fight and wage war on behalf of the souls of men and women against the darkness. And so John is saying, this is where we find ourselves. Let, let me help you locate yourself in the story. This is all the experience of everyone who is in Christ from Jesus's first coming to his second coming. And this is John, we see John living it out right here in, in the description of, of where we find him as these words are being written. He is in the tribulation because he has been sentenced to a life imprisonment on this island, this prison island called Patmos, that is 10 miles off the coast of, of modern day Turkey. He, he is an older man at this time and he's been sent there to just die. And so John is living the last of his days there, not to mention at this point, most if not all of the other apostles of Jesus have been killed, including his brother. His brother was the first apostle to be killed by, by Herod when he was still in power. He was run through with the sword. And so, so John knows what it is to suffer in this world. He is sitting on this prison island. He is mourning the death of all of his best friends and his brother, but he also knows what it is to live in the kingdom. Because this man, as we find him here, when this vision comes to him, when Jesus meets him in this way, he is in the spirit, which means that he is in this prayer and God meets him in this prayer and gives him this vision, gives him this, this uh, ability to see things and speaks to him in a unique way that he does not always uh, John has not always been met with, with that every time that he meets with Jesus. And so John is worshiping God, suffering in this world, and patiently enduring because of love. He is sitting here suffering on this prison island, thinking about, not himself, but thinking about the mission of God in the world and the people that he dearly loves and knows in these seven churches, these other Christians who are in these little Asian churches 
John is sitting on this prison island thinking, I wonder how they're doing, and I'm praying for them, and I'm praying for their stamina and their endurance and their strength and their boldness and their courage because I love them, because Jesus has loved me and I love them. So this is where we find John. And, and here is the dis, disheartening thing at first that, that later becomes encouraging. Um, Jesus does not answer this man's prayer when the majority of the Christian church in the world and John, who is Jesus' beloved, if you go back and read the Gospels, uh, it, is, it is no question that Jesus dearly loved this man. He called him, he, John called himself the beloved of God. And when Jesus sees and hears these prayers and sees his people suffering, he does not end the suffering. But we saw this coming because of a prayer that he prayed before, before he left this world. Uh, in John 17, he says this. He is praying to God the Father And he says this about John and the rest of the apostles and then those who would come after them, including us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of this world. Tribulation, kingdoms, warring. I don't ask that you would take them out of the world. Maybe you could ask for that. No, I don't ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Don't remove them from the war. Keep them from defecting to the other side. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The patient endurance, agents of the kingdom in the tribulation, patiently enduring for the sake of the gospel, for the love of God and for the love of men and women who are enslaved to the evil one who do not yet know God as he is. And this is what makes this verse in Romans 8.17 make sense. Paul writes this, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that our, with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So many times when I've read this verse, I've been like, why? Okay, but why do we have to suffer? I don't understand the connection. And the connection is this. If we don't suffer with him in this patient endurance of the tribulation and the kingdom breaking in on this world, then we don't know him. Because this is what he has done. And we, like we talked about this summer, are apprentices of our master. And so if we are going to follow Jesus and try to be like him in everything that he says and thinks and does, we are going to be running with him into this war for the sake of God and our fellow man. And so if we, ha- we will not suffer with him, that means that his strength does not abide in us. That means that the kingdom purposes are not in us. That means that we don't know the love of Christ yet. And that's what, what Paul is saying. And so um, he is strengthening us with his presence, with his love and his power, not leaving us alone, not leaving John, not leaving these, these Christians, these brothers and sisters in these seven churches, not leaving Maximilian Kolbe and not leaving the many 
men and women who have suffered uh, at the hands of evil, uh, not leaving us alone to be slaves to fear and self-absorption. So moving down here, we start to see this vision John shares with us in these next few verses. And what he is seeing is he is seeing Jesus in his fullness as he is now in all of his glory. And what he needs to see desperately is Jesus' love and his power. If, if he only sees Jesus' love, that is not encouraging because uh, it would be too easy to see that there would be other people more powerful, other forces more powerful than this Jesus who wants good things for him but is not powerful enough to deliver. And if he only sees Jesus' power, then that's not encouraging either because he knows that he is a sinner and he knows uh, that apart from Jesus, he is an enemy of God. He needs to know the love of God as well. And what's about to happen in these next few verses is, if you're familiar with uh, the book Prince Caspian, uh, it's like uh, Prince Caspian was this, this human of this race of the Telmarines, uh, these, these people that uh, have taken over Narnia. They are opposed to Aslan and his kingdom. And uh, what they are saying is, is essentially all that there is is all that you can see. Because there's all these stories that have become fairy tales that are in the distant past about all these talking creatures and magic and things that are happening in the land. And they keep shutting all that down, saying, no, all of that is a lie, all of that is false. And Prince Caspian is being raised by his evil uncle who is trying to take the throne from him. Um, but he has this tutor, Dr. Cornelius, who we later find out is one of those magical creatures. He is a dwarf uh, from... This is amazing. I love talking about this stuff. Um, he is, a, he is uh, a, one of the Narnian creatures. And what he is doing is he is seeding his mind with all of these stories from the past that are true stories. They're not fairy tales. And he's telling them about the greatness of the kingdoms of, of Narnian days of old and the way that things were once and the way that things will be again. And, and if you think about it, um, it's kind of like reading the Old Testament. And that's what's happening here is John's mind, because he was a Jew, has been seeded with all of these amazing stories of God's presence and his provision for his people, his love and his power at work over all of human history. Um, John's mind has been seeded with all these Old Testament images. And what Jesus does in the way that he reveals himself in these visions that he's about to give John is he's purposefully filling those visions. He is injecting as much as possible into these visions of these Old Testament imagery. So like Dr. Cornelius to Prince Caspian, he's saying, you need to know all these things. And now you need to be encouraged that you're going to see these things again. And so just like Prince Caspian has to flee the castle and then he begins to run into this reality of all this magical world that he's been told was a lie all the time, that he couldn't see with his eyes, but he's been told by Dr. Cornelius, it really exists, it really is coming back, and there will be a day that you will see it again. This is what's happening. This is the gift that uh, God, through Jesus, is giving John and all of these Christians in these Asian churches, and then now us, as this letter makes its way to all Christians through all time until Jesus' return is it is filled with all this just massive Old Testament imagery. And we see in this imagery both the love and the power of God that is in Jesus as we see him for who he is. So first, his voice. It's a, a voice like a trumpet. Um, in the Old Testament, the trumpet called, 
called God's people to Mount Sinai to be given the law. It was terrifying. It said when they heard the trumpet blast, they began to shake and weep. But that same trumpet also called people to celebrate the Day of Atonement, which pointed forward to the Jesus who took their sin away. He's one like the Son of Man from the book of Daniel. It's this one from this prophetic vision where the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, gives the kingdom to one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus. He is, he is in the midst. He is with. He is attentive to. Um, he knows what it is to live a human life. But he's also the one who's being given the kingdom, the eternal kingdom for all time. He's wearing a robe and a sash. The way that this robe and sash is described, it is the robe of a priest. It is the work of a priest is to bring people back to God, to reconcile people to God. But he's also wearing the robe of a king because he is also the one who rules over all things. The way that his hair is described is exactly the way the Ancient of Days hair is described in this in vision from Daniel. So not only is he the one like the Son of Man who received the kingdom from God the Father, from the Ancient of Days, he is also the Ancient of Days himself. He is God himself. His eyes are like a flaming fire. Nothing escapes his sight. He burns up all sin and all enemies, but he also burns up our sin and leaves us um, unburned. Uh, there's a better word for that, but it didn't come to me. Um, he burns up all of our sin and frees us from our sin, but we are unharmed because of his love for us, his love and his power. His feet are like burnished bronze refined by fire. It is this, this super strong, he is, he is fixed, he is immovable, his strength no one can stand against because there are no impurities in this strong metal that was used for shields and used for fire basins in the temple service. So fire could not uh, affect these, uh, these tools. And so this one who has feet like uh, burnished bronze refined by fire, there were no impurities to burn up in him. He is perfectly pure, so he is perfectly strong. There's no infirmity that makes him weak. His kingdom will never crumble. And out of his mouth is the two-edged sword, which points to Hebrews uh, 4, 12, and 13. It talks about the word of God. The words that come out of this Jesus' mouth cut through the thoughts and intentions of the heart. They knife through all of our lies and all of our false pretenses. But they also tell us that in Jesus we are forgiven and we are clean and we are loved. His face is like the sun shining in full strength. His glory restrained like the sun's to bring life and warmth and health and healing and reveal things in the light. But if it wasn't restrained, it would melt our faces off. We would be undone. And so we are walking this line with this God who is so holy and so awesome and so powerful and so terrible and so mighty, but also loves us so deeply. And if we are going to know him and worship him, we have to see and know him in both of these ways, that he is the all-powerful God and he is also the all-loving, suffering servant who came to die in our place. So these visions that Jesus reveals to John are not for information, but they are for transformation. They're not to give him more information so that he can write down exactly what Jesus looks like. They are to encourage him, to embolden him, and to expand his mind to see things that he cannot see with his naked eyes. 
And this Jesus, who is full of love and full of power, we see where he is and what he is doing, uh, starting in verse 17 here. When John saw him as he was, he fell at his feet as though dead. He did not decide to fall down and worship. It just happened to him because he was in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God Almighty, ruler of all things, creator of all things. And he saw just a glimpse, these visions, uh, just a glimpse more of who Jesus really is. He just dropped. And it was not something that he could control or decide to do. It just happened. He fell at his feet as though dead, but Jesus laid his right hand on him and said, fear not. Why? Why not? How could I not be terrified of what I'm seeing right now? Because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. The same Jesus who is standing here in all of his glory and majesty is the same Jesus that lived with John for three years and called him friend and laughed with him and ate with him and spoke with him and went to the cross and endured shame and pain beyond measure so that John could have life. And so Jesus is saying, who are you afraid of now? Because the one with all the power, me, I am the first and the last. I am God. There is no other God who can banish you or condemn you. I am God. I am him. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. So who, who can condemn you? You? You, John, your own voice? No, you're not powerful enough to do that. Who, God? No, I am God. Who, Satan and all of his spiritual forces of darkness? That's laughable because I'm holding the keys of death and hell. No one, no one can snatch you out of my hand. This amazing, awesome God is also this God who deeply, deeply loves you. And he says, right, therefore, because this is who I am and because this has deeply encouraged you to be in touch with the raw power of God and also the deep personal love of God, I'm showing you these things for your sake, but I'm also asking you to write them down and share them with your brothers and sisters because this is what they need. They don't need to be taken out of this world. They don't need to be rescued from the suffering that they're having to endure. They need to be strengthened and emboldened and reminded of the power that is at work within them and the love that is at work within them so that they can have love for the people that are torturing them. They can have love for the people that don't yet know me that walk in darkness so that they can complete the very thing for which I have left them on this earth to be partners with me in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And when he tells him to write what he's seen, he says, you may be wondering about what those seven stars in my right hand are. And you may be wondering about what those seven lampstands are because it said as soon as he heard the voice like a trumpet, he turned around to see the one who's speaking to him and he couldn't see him first. He didn't notice him first. What he saw first was just seven golden lampstands. And to help make sense of this, if you're not an Old Testament scholar, um, 
I'm not either. I, I discovered this this week. Um, the lampstand that he's referring to is back when God's people were on the move and they didn't have a permanent temple. There was this thing called the tabernacle. And in the, in the tabernacle, there was the lampstand, the golden lampstand, which signified God's presence. The light of the lampstand was his presence. So it's like him resting and being with his people uh, right next to the bread of the presence. So it's this beautiful picture of intimacy with God between him and his people. They're sharing, they're breaking bread together. He is present with his people. And when they built the permanent temple in Jerusalem, um, that wasn't that permanent, it turns out, there was also the golden lampstand and the bread of the presence there. It has always signified God's presence with his people, his light amongst the people. And he says, these seven lampstands are the seven churches that you are writing this letter to. And, and like we said last week, that number seven is significant because in, in Revelation, uh, there is a symbolic meaning in, in addition to an actual meaning of numbers. And so this seven is a number of completeness. And so he's not only writing, he is writing to these seven actual churches at the time in Asia, but he's also writing to the complete church of Jesus Christ for all of history. And he is saying that um, each church, so the church that is at Midtown West is like this golden lampstand. It is a place where the presence of Jesus is, is in this world. He is in our midst. He is bringing light into darkness. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And he's saying, these golden lampstands are my churches. And where is Jesus? Where does it say he is? He is right in the middle of them. He is not far away. He is not far, far away in glory, divorced from all suffering. Hey, I've already done my part. I'll see you guys when you get here too. He is in the midst of his people. He still is. He is in the midst of us. He is so present with us right now. He knows everything that you and I are enduring for the sake of the kingdom. He knows everything. He knows all suffering. He knows everything that is happening here. And he is right here, attentive, watching, seeing, knowing, meeting us in our weakness where we need him. This Jesus is with his people. And he says, the stars that are in my right hand, these stars are the angels of the seven churches. So this word for angel, is, it means messenger, and a lot of times, mostly in Revelation, it means angelic messengers, but it can also mean human messengers. And so there's a question between Bible scholars of, is he talking about maybe the pastors of these seven churches, the leaders, the elders of these seven churches that are the messengers of this word that will come to them, and they will take it to the other churches? Or is he talking about seven and angels that are, overseeing these seven churches. Because we know in Scripture that it seems to say that that is something that happens, that part of what angels are doing is they are protecting, they are overseeing, they are fighting against these, these realms of spiritual darkness. And I would submit that whichever of these Jesus has in mind, the answer is both. Because he is the one with all power, so even the most majestic powerful, angelic beings that cause everyone else to fall down in fear. Jesus is holding them in his right hand. Total control. And 
Those of us who are his people, he's got us in his right hand. He knows everything that's happening to us. He is going to make sure that this word gets out to his people and nothing can stop it. Nothing can change. Nothing can stop his hand when he is doing his will. So this Jesus, who is all-powerful and all-loving, does not remove us from our suffering, but he meets us in our suffering. To remove us from suffering would be to take us out of the war that is happening, and that's not who he is, and so that's not who we are. To run away from the fight for the souls of men is not who we are, and that's not who he is. But we are in him. He is in us. And so we will endure because his strength dwells in us and his love dwells in us. And it will forever until he returns. Father, um, thank you for this deep encouragement. Father, I pray that you would make this word powerful to accomplish your will in Midtown West, the church that is at Midtown West, and all of, all of your gospel churches around the world, but also in each one of us. I pray that you would continue to set us free from slavery of fear, slavery of fear of condemnation, of death, of pain, of suffering, and free us from self-absorption, where all we can think about is ourselves and how comfortable we, we can make ourselves here. Father, help us to see this world for what it really is, Help us to see what it is to be on mission with you, to follow you, to belong to you. Help us to experience the depth of your love for us so that we will not need to fill our own pockets with things to make us feel better. Lord, help us to, to tap into the strength and the love and the power that is your living presence in each one of us and in this body. And Lord, would you use uh, the rest of our time in worship and all of the experiences that you have ordained for us this coming week to do that. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.